So Vladimir Putin's war tactics are pretty monstrous and malignant. Um, what happens if in Ukraine, if Putin is getting desperate after Ukraine sank his naval flagship with Western supplied armaments? Is US President Joe Biden displaying the kind of judicious statesman-like leadership that the moment requires? On the home front, the culture war is heating up in Florida as Governor DeSantis scrutinizes Florida's public school curriculum. And what's the future of mask mandates now that a federal court has pulled the plug on the CDC's authority to require masks? We'll talk about all this and more in today's episode of Independent Outlook. Hello, everybody. I'm Graham Walker coming to you today from the Independent Institute in Oakland, California, right across the bay from San Francisco, where we try and give you a take on the issues of the day that doesn't fit into standard categories, but instead takes an independent look. And as always, I am joined by my wonderful colleagues, uh, David Thoreau and Williamson Evers. First, David Thoreau, thank you for starting the Independent Institute and getting this conversation going uh, several decades ago. And welcome today, David Thoreau. Thank you, Graham. Good to be here. Great to see you. Also wonderful to see Williamson Evers. Bill Evers is the director of our Center on Educational Excellence, on which topic he will no doubt weigh in a little later in the program. Hi, Bill. Hi. Great to see you. Also, we're so happy to be joined by many people today who are coming to us via our YouTube page, Facebook, Vimeo, Twitter, and especially thinkspot.com. Welcome to all of you. So um, let's talk a little bit about what's happening uh, in eastern Ukraine today and maybe southern Ukraine as well uh, with apparently the aid of Western, if not indeed U.S. armaments. The Ukrainians struck the flagship of the Baltic fleet of the Russian Federation, the Moskva, the Moscow, uh, and uh, it's it sank. Now, the Russians say, well, there was a fire broke out. The Ukrainians proudly claim credit. Uh, and the U.S. Pentagon has apparently confirmed that the Ukrainians are right. Uh, I wonder what the truth is. But regardless, uh, if Moscow feels that it has been deeply humiliated, what will that do to the course of the war? Any thoughts on that, friends? I don't think it'll make much difference. I think it's a moral victory for the Ukrainians. Uh, an embarrassment for the for uh, Putin, uh, but I suspect it doesn't really shift much uh, unless the reality is the technology the Ukrainians have for uh, tactical uh, missiles has been enhanced considerably. We were talking a couple of weeks ago about the effort on the part of some to get the United States to send in uh, fighter planes for their use, and apparently the Biden administration hesitated on that. But it looks like maybe, as of reports today in this morning's Washington Post, that maybe uh, the U.S. administration is actually going to send them some fighter jets. I'm a little confused. Have you heard anything on this, uh, Bill or David? I think, you know, there's increased pressure. And every time <clears throat> President Biden says war criminal and says genocide, he's in a sense inviting more pressure on him. So maybe he wants it uh, to do more. So more advanced missiles, tanks. You know, they're going to have, if the Russians are going to take eastern Ukraine, <clears throat> they're going to have to have tanks. The, 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 the Ukrainians, hopefully, they think they can stand them off with anti-tank weapons, but some people think, well, you need to have tanks against tanks. Of course, that will leave the Ukrainians vulnerable to the same things that the Russians have been vulnerable. So they can get out ahead of their supply chain, 
They can get caught out in the open. They can be subjected to Russian anti-tank weapons. But anyway, the Russians are going to certainly use tanks to go into the Donbass. And people are asking that tanks come in from... There are lots of Soviet-era uh, tanks that exist in the former Warsaw Pact countries that are now in NATO. So more equipment could continue to flow in. The question really is sort of, it's, it's kind of threefold. What is the West really up to? Is it trying to prolong a war and hoping that it will end up overthrowing Putin through that? Is Ukraine willing to settle on some cosmetic, symbolic things that are not ha they're not happy with, but if they can hang on to something close to what they had before this war started, are they willing to settle for that? Or as the, the excitement of the war, the enthusiasm of the war mean they want to sweep the Russians out of the Donbass, which is their current feeling, and maybe even out of Crimea. And, you know, but that is going to be hard. And to the Russians, so Russia has... Going back to the 1550s, it's had kind of an obligate choice. Which is it going to go? Pro-Western or pro-Mongol, pro-Turkish? Pro pro back and forth. Mm -hmm. Right. So right now, Putin is in the Russian <laughs> Empire mode and the against the West mode and the pro-Slavic nationalism, religious nationalism mm -hmm. mode. And he, if he persists in that, and he certainly has quite a bit of power still in this country. He may not give in. He may just keep fighting and, you know, two, three, many Mariupols, right? So that would be ugly, but that might be his plan. I was thinking about the uh, advice from the ancient Chinese military philosopher, political philosopher Sun Tzu, who said, do not press a desperate foe too hard. Right. Um, which seems to me to be rather apt. Um, maybe he, maybe Putin's not desperate, but he looks pretty desperate, uh, and he has a reason to feel desperate. Sun Tzu's point was that Sun Tzu's point was that if you press a desperate foe too hard, you may provoke a reaction that is even contrary to your own interests. That's my concern with yeah. President Biden's reactions. I think your concern well, it's, well, it's not. Yeah, David, I think ahead. your concern is well placed. Uh, there's a few different ways a dictator can stay in power. You know, he can. Uh, deliver the goods financially, economically to the people. Well, Putin's not in a position to do that, and he hasn't been doing that since the previous petroleum boom. You can uh, you can provide glory. You can have fear. You can scare the population. There's a lot of different ways. He is trying for military glory, a la the takeover of Crimea combined with fear, repression. And the danger that you're really pointing to here is that if he's humiliated, if he's pressed into a corner, he will not just see, oh, this is a defeat, this is an unfortunate thing for Russia. He will think, my hold on power is seriously in right. danger. Mm -hmm. Right, and I think that relates to uh, the pressure currently, I think, largely from Republicans but I think it's, it's a certain bipartisan push to reestablish the U.S. Embassy in Kyiv, 
Uh, currently, it's sort in a sort of a temporary mm. situation in Le in Leaves. How do I pronounce it? Lviv. Um, Lemberg, yeah, if we're yeah. going to go with Ludwig von Mises, Lemberg, mm, right? Lviv. That's right, exactly. And so, I think you know, information warfare is in many respects more important than mm -hmm. uh, kinetic warfare because it's the hearts and minds of people and morale and and all the rest of it, saving face. And that goes back to that quote that you mentioned, Graham. Yeah, I'm thinking uh, in terms of information warfare. Uh, are we supposed to think that President Joe Biden is especially shrewd in these blurted, off-the-cuff remarks, like when he said when he was in Poland that, you know, for God's sake, this man has to get out of power, and when he then recently characterized uh, the uh, military killings in Ukraine as genocide, and then he doubled down on it. But then the White House, in both cases, circled back and said, well, no, uh, he, it sounds like he's changing U.S. policy, but actually he's not. Um, and he's just speaking from the heart. Um, is he playing a double shrewd game here or is he bumbling? Well, Biden has a long history of uh, having a temper, being emotional, having emotional responses to circumstances. But given that, <clears throat> you know, the, the White House handlers may be positioning him in ways to use that weakness as well. Uh, I think the one telling uh, part of it is the interview um, in the New Statesman that Bill's mentioned in the past uh, was basically saying that they just did not, the Russians don't take anything that Biden says seriously because mm -hmm. they can't go by it. Mm -hmm. So whether he's actually admitting the view that the State Department and the White House has, or he's just talking off the cuff or some other combination, mm -hmm. uh, we're not really sure. But uh, if, I, if I was the Russians or if I was any, any, any opponents, I would uh, prepare for any of the above. It seems to me, you know, if Biden says something about domestic policy, it's true he can use executive orders to do some things, but he has much more power, proportionally speaking, in foreign policy. So, if he says, we're going to prosecute Vladimir Putin as a war criminal and the generals and some others, and then the White House says, oh, no, we're not. I mean, it's kind of bizarre. It seems to me, actually, the mm -hmm. U.S. is laying down a marker that it's going to prosecute the Russians if they're mm -hmm. defeated as war criminals or maybe in absentia if it's some kind of a, a draw. I think the Biden... It should shut up. He's not in a position to enunciate the reflective view of his administration. Well, also, I think that again, uh, Trump uh, had have Trump to, had some have, problems like this too. Oh, unquestionably. But I think we have to keep in mind that again, Trump's handlers are very cognizant of their own political followers and what they need in the midterm and so forth. And they may be positioning him to try to serve both ends, to play to the to their their base, mm -hmm. and also, you know, maybe that he's. I think you may have meant Biden. You just said you're talking about Trump now, and I think you're. I'm sorry, yeah. I, I, Biden. Yeah. That's right. So I think that they may be thinking in terms of using Biden uh, to accomplish a number of things simultaneously, uh, unwittingly perhaps from his own knowledge of what's going on. Uh, you know, it, I remember a lot of people said during the Trump years uh, that it was a big plus, at least Trump's defenders said it was a big plus that he was 
regarded as being so emotionally volatile and unpredictable mm -hmm. uh, and that he would blurt stuff out and that kept all of his enemies, you know, foreign enemies jumping and wondering. Mm -hmm. I guess there's something similar going on now. Um, I don't know that blurting stuff out is ever really that wise. No, I, I think that's, that's, that's a very wise statement, Graham. <laughs> well, very thoughtful. We, yes. We've got a number of, of our friends with us on the program now. I just got an interesting comment or question from one of our friends uh, by the name of Dick who says, uh, he says, I see lots of uh, photo ops about how much dollar aid we're giving to Ukraine, um, but I'm not seeing armaments delivered just promised. We have once again not seen so much foot dragging in years on what happened to lend lease. I'm old enough to remember this, says Dick. Any comments on the analogy with Lend-Lease? Well, Lend-Lease was, view, was viewed by the Germans as a, an act of war. And it is an act of war. Uh, and the U.S. is unquestionably the, the number one supplier of military weapons uh, and intelligence. Lots of uh, intelligence. And other, lots of intelligence and other things that the Ukrainians depend on. So. Uh, Putin is well aware of that, and um, but the the drum beating to escalate that into boots on the ground and uh, having U.S. planes or any planes that are essentially tied to uh, to European powers and to the United States, I think, is very reckless. Yeah, don't do it. That's what I would say. Right. Uh, Bill, you drew my attention to this article in the New York Post. Um, I think it was yesterday when we were looking at these things together, uh, which is pointing out how. There's an effort underway in the Biden administration uh, to punish Russia by utilizing and re-empowering the International Criminal Court. Right. Um, and, and so the I funny thing about that article by Mr. Tobin was that uh, he points out that probably within <laughs> the Biden administration, it's not so much the transgressions of Putin and the Russian military that fascinate them, it's that they get to bring back this International Court of Justice. And this is really fraught with peril for the independence of the United States. It really uh, is. You know, these other countries have different standards of law than we do. We have a more rigorous rule of law. We have better protections of liberties and so forth. And also the courts can be politicized. You know, that it's hardly news that Victor's justice is a problem in, in history, but also this is sort of globalist justice. So what for whatever right, merit much. that has, mm -hmm. I think uh, I think they're wrong. The U.S. has shied away from the, the, this court and in the past, and I think this is no, you know, let's let's give you an example. Let's say some people in South Korea are sending little balloon messages into North Korea. And Which some they um, have. And some American charity is helping mm -hmm. fund these. And let's yes. say North Korea says, this is an act of war. This is an infringement on our sovereignty, blah, blah, blah. And the U.S. is responsible. The U.S. has troops in the area. This, co this mm -hmm. corporation, the nonprofit corporation that's doing this is chartered by the United States government. We're going to the world court. Okay, well, if some kind of crazy people are in the world court sitting as justices, they may say you can't do this. 
I, that's, I mean, I, I picked a very far-fetched example. So, so it, but it's not but so it's far not it's it's not completely far-fetched. Far that's the thing. No. We, know, we know people who've done exactly what you've said. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so anyway, I think we should stay away from this. And the Biden people are letting their ideology and their hopes and dreams for some kind of beneficent world empire get in the way of common sense. We keep yeah, seeing well, examples of the slogan, the motto, don't let a crisis go to waste. Maybe this is an yet another example of that in the Biden team. Well, the ideology is also this globalist, one world, world economic forum uh, mantra. And uh, it's, it's a dangerous folly that they're going to essentially plan the world and the, and the view that, these, that such a court is going to be independent uh, and making decisions based on the rule of law is, is a fantasy. Well, another enemy of the globalist vision and the World Economic Forum and so forth is one of the two candidates for the French presidency, Marine Le Pen, uh, who has in the past actually promised or was it threatened to withdraw France from the EU. Uh, now she is within striking distance of Emmanuel Macron. I'm having trouble, not that it really matters what I think, but I'm having <laughs> trouble knowing whom I should be rooting for. Uh, my sympathies are kind of with her, but on the other hand, I'm worried about some of her policies. For example, she would like to use the power of the French state to forbid Muslim women to wear veils if they so choose. I don't think that's so great. Any comments, Bill? Uh, well, I think, you know, there's all these different strains in French politics, okay? So there's the communists and the far left. They got about 20% in this last election. And there's kind of... The, the 22%. And then there's mm. kind of the, the center left, which is Macron. There used to mm -hmm. be a center right. That's the Republicans. They got about 5%. The, 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 the Socialist Party of Mitterrand and Hollande, they got five, a little less than 5%. The, 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 the Republicans got almost nothing. They're the heirs of the pro-Europe pro liberals and Gaullists. Yeah, that was Valéry Giscard d'Estaing. Yeah, d'Estaing, Chirac, mm -hmm. Pompidou, de Gaulle, so forth. So those are, they didn't necessarily like each other at the time, but that kind of center-right strain, that guy, that gal rather, she was the administrative president of Ile de France. She, she didn't do very well. There Madame, was a... There uh, was a Press, I think her name, Presses is her name. Yes, yeah. yes. There was a... Another ultra-right candidate, a nationalist, but an anti-high taxes guy, uh, Emile uh, Zamour, uh, and, and he's a radio, TV commentator, intellectual guy. He didn't end up doing too well. And then there's Le Pen, and she ended up uh, getting very close to Macron, and there Macron and she are going to go into the runoff. So <laughs> she's anti-NATO persistently. She's very skeptical of NATO. She used to be very skeptical of the EU and of the euro, the, the coin of Europe, the, the currency of Europe. But there's a, a lure in French politics toward the technocratic center, okay? And mm -hmm. that's how you get to be a legitimate, a sort of establishment acceptable candidate. And instead of a kind of, adopting what I would wish that a candidate would do, which is adopt the uh, Pujadist. So in the, inter uh, the immediate post-war, post-World War II period, there was a Pierre 
Pujat, and he led a huge tax rebellion. And the Yellow Jackets, the Yellow Vest people that were just a couple, few years ago, uh, they were a sort of populist anti-taxes descendant of that. And well, the recent rebellion of uh, people against the uh, fuel tax. That's the fuel tax is the, is the, is the, is the yellow jackets. We're talking about yeah. th this year. Yeah. Right. Too. So, they, yeah. so they were rebelling against Macron. Now, they had a bunch of leftist demands about minimum wages and you know, French companies right. and this and that. But they had some good, serious anti-tax things. And they wanted to lower the overall tax burden on the society and other, other things. Pretty good thing. So, but... Neither candidate really represents that. Macron is good where he opposes the sclerotic, inflexible labor laws. And so you can't hire and fire at will in French companies. It's just horribly sclerotic, horribly. And he's good on that. But he's, you know, wants to make NATO a world power. He's all for the EU. He's... He's a social democrat, so he, you know, he's a center-left redistributionist, but not, of course, nearly as much as the ultra-left communist guy, a small C communist, because the Communist Party mm -hmm. itself has pretty much disappeared from the scene. Right. So earlier this year, um, Le Pen said that the EU as it exists today was, quote, neglectful of peoples and domineering of nations, intrusive and authoritarian locked into a globalist open border ide ideology that's destroying our French identity. Uh, I think we can be sympathetic to that. I think we can yeah, be sympathetic right. to that. But at the same time, you know, the combination of ultra-nationalism with left-wing redistributionist cartelizing economics is a very, very bad combination historically. It's the policy of Mussolini and so forth. So yeah, it, we just a lot have of it to depends be, on, both candidates could become better if they get yeah, in power yeah. and do the right thing, or they could become horror shows, okay? That's right. The one difference, uh, striking difference, is that Le Pen is clearly uh, someone who focuses on um, making France great again, essentially, <laughs> right. is, is her view. Mm -hmm. And Macron doesn't care. Uh, basically, unless for political expediency purposes, he's basically a globalist, um, and his policies follow that. Uh, I do think a lot of it is going to come down to how authentic her um, view in picking up the anti-tax sentiments that have become very apparent in the last few years. Yeah. She has come out against the VAT for fuel uh, and gasoline and, and so on and so forth. She wants to end subsidies mm -hmm. to wind turbines and other green projects. Uh, she uh, wants to end the EU mandates. And so uh, Macron has, is She shows some good signs. But, but, yeah, but so Macron Sam is Samur was better yeah. on taxes than she. And the, all oh, the British and American right. commentators claimed that she pulled ahead of him because she was more left-wing on economics. And that, that he was too pro what they call liberal, what we would call classical liberal or libertarian, Yes, forgetting you know we're we're abstracting from his ultra nationalism. Uh, anyway, sorry, David. Anyway, I was going to say that the the I believe the reason why she's been increasing in popularity and surprised people in coming in second in the recent uh, 
runoff and leading to the current runoff is because she was embracing more sort of classical liberal leaning policies of tax reductions, ending subsidies, um, and so on and so forth. I think so, she's going to raise subsidies if she gets She that. might. It depends on what she wants subsidies for and against. She's against subsidies. Uh, the tax, she's against the French citizenry paying subsidies to non-French businesses and so mm. on and so forth. So, you know, it is... It she is wants this, the subsidies uh, for the French businesses. She wants the subsidies well, for the French agriculture. <laughs> right. right. She, so I think my point is, though, that I think a lot of her appeal, the increase in her appeal, is because she was embracing more and more of a more classical liberal uh, competition. Mm -hmm. And if she had the good sense, she would embrace a lot more because I think Macron is weak on, you know, the welfare state and the protect and all sorts of, I mean, he is, he's a zealot for the climate alarmist, um, is. extremism in almost every case. Um, uh, one difference between the two of them is that he wants to, um, raise the age of, uh, pension, uh, to 65, right, and she wants to keep it at 62. That's a huge, uh, but that that's a left wing position on her part. It is a left. It's a left wing position. So I would, I, if I had to vote, I would hold my nose and vote for Macron. Yeah. I think he is terrible, but that's if you have a choice of two, that's who I would yeah. be for. David, I think you would go the other way. You would hold your nose and hope for the best with Le Pen. Well, I'm not saying I would vote for either. Yeah. Well, I'm that's saying another. All that's I'm saying is a valid choice. part of what I'm. Bill, sorry, what I'm trying sorry. to get at is that the rebellion in Hungary and in Poland right. and in, in the UK and elsewhere is a reflection of this rebellion against the European Union, it its is. mandates. Uh, my wife and I used to have a business where we would sell grain products to Europe and we had to go through um, Dublin to get them in because the European Union's protectionist measures are ho so horrible. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, it's uh, he's a protectionist, but on a European scale, and she's a protectionist on a French scale. Right. But my point again is, it is, uh, it's really folly to believe that language, and culture, and history uh, are and, unimportant. Uh, they are very important. Are unimportant. They're, They're very important. And if you push against it, which the European Union has been doing, you're going to get these responses, and ultimately, it's not going to be pretty. So, how do you? transition away from that. Uh, Brexit was one, I think, positive direction for the British. Um, and uh, it, it, all I'm trying to say is I think it's interesting to the extent that if she is getting more popular, it's because she is embracing things that do actually reduce the cost to the average French person. And and she's she is a complex of contradictions. There's no, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, she, she is. You know, so some of you, one of you mentioned the idea of uh, classically liberal concerns, I would say classically or historically liberal concerns, have largely uh, pivoted on the recognition that the amalgamation and consolidation of state power is always to be regretted and that it's always better to divide and limit government power. Uh, right. and so it, it cuts both ways here in a sense, but I, if I have to hold my nose, Although I might, I might asphyxiate myself while, while pulling the lever for Le Pen, but I, I think I'd hold my nose for Le Pen because, because of this point that the preservation of national entities is actually part of a very important uh, large strategy to divide and constrain governmental power and to prevent right. the consolidation 
an amalgamation of internationalist government power, which is far harder to limit and has very few checks and balances on it. Nations can check and balance one another, but a huge new world order with a center at Brussels can't really check itself. But the, biggest, but the bigger point also is, is to extend that lower, that uh, if she had the good sense, she would want a decentralized yes. power in France Indeed. itself Indeed. to she communities and private entities. Yeah. And that would, that would be a far um, there have more been There have been effect. occasional. So classical liberalism <laughs> is very weak right now, per se, in France. I mean, the Republicans were kind of a, a little bit informed by that. The, the per se classical liberal parties hardly they can't nobody's in can get in parliament from that kind of a position there are clubs there are think tanks there are some intellectuals yeah. uh but they don't really loom uh strongly in the no. public arena there well right. speaking about limiting government powers um very important principle. I agree that if she were more consistent, she would also want to prevent the amalgamation of state power in France. But in the U.S., at least, we still have a constitutional order that still has these residually important entities called states. There are 50 of them, uh, and they, their powers are protected by the Tenth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, and they provide a way of checking and balancing both one another and federal power, which limits power and, and protects uh, the common good. One expression of this, coming back again across the Atlantic to the U.S. shores, is what's happening in Florida right now. I'm changing the subject, as you can see, very dexterously, I'm sure, um, to see You're what- You're not changing it drastically. You're just changing it to a drastically different subject. Similar point. Yeah, different, different place. In Florida, uh, fascinating uh, that the Republican majority in the legislature and the Republican governor, Ron DeSantis there, have really picked up on the use of their state prerogatives um, in fascinating ways. So, for example, um, I read this account of what Ron DeSantis has recently done in CNN uh, on Monday, uh, pretty fascinating, uh, where they were commenting on the news uh, that uh, state's education department in furtherance of a uh, enacted and signed law has announced that 41% of all math textbooks in Florida uh, were rejected for for failing to meet the state's new standards. And there were a variety of other textbooks that were rejected too. Uh, and so, for example, um, uh, some books were rejected, quote, because of unsolicited addition, addition of social emotional learning in mathematics. And so the CNN commentator, I'm reading from the CNN article, um, CNN commentator says uh, sarcastically, yes, why would you want kids to learn about social and emotional issues? That's not a life skill. Wait. But th the writer at CNN has no idea that th this whole social and emotional learning uh, thing is a whole conceptual apparatus that carries very heavy ideological baggage. Uh, why should it be taken at face value? Bill's going to comment on that in a moment. But in addition to that, uh, of course, there's the question of, is this banning books? CNN says that that by scrutinizing the books in the required state curriculum in Florida and uh, getting rid of these various woke ideological books, he says banning books is rarely a good look. <laughs> so is this banning books? Okay, I'm going to stop in a minute, but my comment on this is that um, the issue is that the state power, the power of the state would have been requiring students to read certain books. 
That's right. Obliging them to read certain books. And so now CNN says that failing to force students to read certain books is somehow banning books. Yes, that's exactly There's right. some kind so of really the, weird inversion of analysis going on here. What, well, the, the authoritarian impulse is, is missed with this, this commentator. One thing I want to mention before Bill starts on this. Bill has things to say. <laughs> Bill and, uh, and, and others uh, here did a phenomenally great study um, on the change in the policies on the uh, public school level. Uh, in Florida, critiquing the Common Core and embracing the BEST standard. Right. So, do you want to comment on that, Bill? Good work, Bill. Yes, uh, I worked with uh, Zaev Vorman and uh, Jim Milgram, a famous math mathematician at Stanford, and with David Steiner, who formerly was the commissioner for the entire state New York public school system, and is now at Johns Hopkins. And we did an analysis of the new Florida academic content standards. They are truly excellent. They are truly a step above and beyond and rejecting the bad in Common Core. And uh, they should, you know, they're some of the best in the country, if not the best in the country. So uh, they have good academic content standards. Now, so one of the things that, so, so every state is sort of different. I mean, we're, this is Hooray! Vive la différence! Vive so, la différence! I don't know. I'm going to think what I think is this case in Florida. So the state looks at a slew, a panel of all these different textbooks, say there's a hundred, and they say, okay, are you in conformity with our academic content standards and other requirements of the law? So in California, you have to provide in the textbook for how the teacher is going to deal with kids who have learning deficiencies. They are special education kids. You have to have something in your textbook or in your supplemental material for the teacher about how this instructional material can be used with such students. So Florida has whatever it has along these lines. So some of the things it has since it rejected Common Core in adopting its standards, it doesn't want textbooks that are Common Core textbooks because the state's academic content standards are their own ones, these best standards that David was just talking about. And uh, they also, they've rejected social emotional learning. So this is a kind of a idea, it can be interpreted a lot of different ways, but the essential idea is that living in an oppressive capitalistic society is traumatizing you, and therefore the teacher is supposed to be a therapist and maybe help you, guide you to help overthrow this thing that's traumatizing you. Okay. So, at least in that version, it's certainly something that doesn't belong in the classroom. That sounds like a math curriculum to me. Yeah, it sounds an awful <laughs> like, like the California math curriculum. But anyway, the point is, Florida doesn't want this. And so they said, you know, if you have that in it, we don't want you. Or you can take it out and resubmit. And so... You can sell it in some other state. But this is, this is many, many states do this. This is hardly unique to Florida. It's not book banning. I mean, I don't know... In California, the situation used to be that if you didn't have an approved textbook, 
you could still buy it. You just had to pay 100% of the cost. You didn't get any subsidy from the state for buying an unapproved textbook, uh, which I th- that seems like a reasonable way to do it. I don't know the details. I don't, I don't know exactly how it works in Florida. Florida is unusual. Every school district is an entire county in Florida. Um, so... So when we, when we hear about social and emotional learning, there's a kind of uh, I think, rhetorical uh, the, sleight of hand that yeah, goes the, on Yeah, the main thing is w- look under the hood. What exactly do yeah. they mean by this? Mm-hmm. And, and so the Florida people, I think, are rightfully skeptical. And there's a right. lot right. of stuff to look under the hood about. I mean, you know, uh, in, in Florida also, uh, there's the more notorious, more well-known issue that the legislature passed and the governor signed the bill that... Uh, uh, forbade instruction in sexual orientation and gender identity concepts through K through four. And uh, the same CNN article that was criticizing Governor DeSantis on the curriculum matter criticized him here. They say it's so-called don't, don't say gay bill, which according to CNN, bans discussion of gender and sexuality among young students. It doesn't ban any such things. It bans instruction. In other words, it bans the state or teachers as an expression of state power from adopting a point, a conceptual point of view that they instruct the students in. That's what's forbidden, not discussion. But there's a deliberate mischaracterization that goes on in these characterizations of the Florida issues. Well, it goes beyond that, I think, in that the, the, the basic view of the CNN commentator and most progressives is that uh, the government is, are the parents, and they have the guardianship right. rights that uh, circumvent the parents' rights. And it's the parents and the nuclear family and capitalism and so on that are uh, creating these dysfunctional people uh, and that small children are gender fluid and to prevent them from uh, achieving who they are is, uh, is child abuse. So the, the whole thing is inverted and it, it's becoming, I think, pretty uh, visible to the average person, not just that this is crackpot, but that it is it is itself abusive, uh, and so I think that the the measure that Florida adopted to protect children from being um, manipulated at young ages, sexualized essentially, um, is uh, a noble act. Yeah, they're I think, the idea I think, to prevent I think the David, sexual ideology propaganda is what they're trying to prevent. Right, Bill? exactly. I think David is making a very important point here when he says that there's an ideology of parens patriae. In other words, that this ch- the child is a child of the state, not a child of the parents. And our view, the three of us, is, and I think really the view of the vast majority of the American public, is, the child is the child of the child's parents. And, right. you know, Yes, okay, maybe some public schools are out there and parents take uh, make use of them, but they don't somehow own the child. The child is in the custody and the custodial keeping of the biological parents or the like. Right. And most, and so, most people uh, are supportive of the Florida legislation when they are polled. For example, Public Opinion Strategies did a poll showing that even uh, uh, respondents who, who know someone who personally identifies as what they call LGBTQ+, of those 
support the Florida restriction on instruction in such matters and those grade levels. So it's not as if it's a partisan thing, but in the media, it seems to be cast in partisan terms. Right. So I, I think that the uh, a lot of this go also goes back to a critique of um, public education itself, uh, which came into being uh, largely to socialize uh, people um, for patriotic and religious reasons. And uh, uh, progressives uh, were directly involved in that, and they control the institutions themselves. And as progressive ideology has morphed with the trends and so on and so forth, um, some people think as progressive ideology has been perfected, which uh, I think has multiple meanings, um, the, uh, it's become evident to a lot of people that they, their view is they live in a community, they're paying taxes for certain services, they want their children to be educated as part of those services, but it's become more, more and more clear that this is really a fight right. with people who are controlling the situation regardless of what the parents want and care about and the children want and care about. So I think that's why there is this big movement towards homeschooling, private education, and so forth, as well as um, parents taking over school boards mm -hmm. uh, and you know the elections this, uh, in uh, this past November in Virginia and other places, Texas and so on, which showed that parents, and it's happening around the country, California is another example, where more, more parents are becoming energized and engaged because they don't buy this woke approach and they want their children protected. While we're in Florida, how about this federal judge, Catherine Kimball Mizell, uh, who just a few days ago uh, ruled against the CDC uh, and told them they really didn't have the authority to insist on these mask mandates in transportation and so forth. Uh, pretty uh, courageous action. Now, she was a federal judge, not a state of Florida judge, but she happens to sit in the uh, district, uh, federal district for Middle Florida, middle, middle District of Florida, and she apparently pointed out that the CDC had relied on the Public Health Service Act, 1944, uh, to impose the mandate, but uh, the government argued that it put the man mask mandate in, in place for the purpose of quote-unquote sanitation, as the bill said, and she said that it's not about sanitation because it, she said um, a mask cleans nothing. At most, it traps virus droplets. It neither sanitizes the person wearing the mask nor sanitizes the conveyance, she wrote. So they didn't have the authority to do it, and so it's out. And so now suddenly, everyone's flying again without masks. Uber and Lyft have lifted their own private mask mandates. Uh, it's a new world, suddenly, thanks to Catherine Kimball Mazel. What do you think, Bill? I think uh, you summarize it pretty well. I would just add that when she said it doesn't sanitize, she said there are examples given in the statute, and they're all, you know, things. They're all pieces of property that you could clean, you could sanitize, mm -hmm. and not human beings walking around. And so she said this doesn't really apply, and you can't just if you if you try and put it under other things that you could do, then that's just like an unbelievable power grab. For the government to say yep. it can do awesome. anything in the, for the sake of public health, and then yep. she, by she added to this that there's a thing called the uh, Administrative Procedures Act, and that says that if there's a, 
some kind of order, some kind of executive order, you need to go through a comment period where the public comments mm -hmm. and points out potential problems with this. And then that's brought back to the agency and the agency modifies or doesn't uh, the, the order, proposed order. And they had, they had plenty of notice that this disease, this pandemic was out there. They put this, the CDC put this order in well into the, the time of the pandemic. It wasn't like there wasn't an emergency and they had, they, they knew they could have, they had time for the comment period and they just arbitrarily chose to avoid it. And so she said, Hey, can't do this. So this so is a rule of law. Vetting. This is rule of law. And they of course skipped, they skipped the vetting procedure. Right. So there's two did. breaches, yeah. two breaches of the rule of law. The first is that Congress never authorized exactly. the CDC to have these powers. Right. Uh, and part of the, the her point essentially about uh, masking has nothing to do with sanitizing is that if you require someone to wear a mask, you're requiring the person to breathe repeatedly in their own bacteria. There's nothing that's being cleansed or sanitized. Right. Um, and then, of course, the administrative uh, uh, act as well as that Bill mentioned. So um, the uh, the woke uh, left essentially has gone into hysterics. Uh -huh. uh, one, of, one of the interesting things that came out of it was that uh, the next day, uh, maybe the same day, Biden was asked about that and said, well, people make up their own mind if they want to wear a mask or not. What? Or not. That's new. Ah, it's their decision. Ah. So then, Jen, this is so this Jen, is a, this is Jen, a, this is him blurting out again. <laughs> Except so we like Jen it. So then, had to walk it back, um, in a rather embarrassing way, claiming that oh, it was just the timing <laughs> of when he said that. Technically, following the court's rule, that you would be free then, but we're going to we're going to challenge it. it. Right. And so the, the, of course, the extension by the CDC was through, I believe, May May fifth for about two weeks or May third, yeah. whatever it was. So that's been blocked, so, right? So that's been blocked also. But the point is that that wasn't a long time. So why would the Department of Justice declare an effort to challenge this ruling, knowing that it would be null and void as of then anyway? Because they want so to. My, they want to claim the huge power. Under they want to claim health. the power. It's, it's a, well, it's not just under public health. It's a threat to the administrative state itself, yeah. because all these all these orders are not being specified by Congress, right? And these regulations and so forth. And so they feel they have to do that. Plus, I believe that um, the White House and the Democrats are, uh, have decided to play to their base, which um, is outraged that. Uh, one, people are not complying with what the, what the CDC wants because the CDC is based on science, which is baloney. Uh, and then also that it undermines the uh, authority of Biden and uh, progressives to get their way. So I think that, uh, and Colbert had a, had a whole monologue on this in which he made a fool of himself, making fun of this whole point about sanitizing and uh, try to liken it to other things. But anyway, the point is that this was a huge setback, and I think this uh, this judge needs uh, enormous right. credit and should be commended for having the courage and the integrity and the judicial knowledge to pursue it. Mm -hmm. I think it was framed extremely carefully, the wording, yes. right? very thoughtful. Right. And I think one of the things we're seeing from the judiciary these days 
is they're very carefully scrutinizing the wording of the law and whether administrative agencies are exceeding that. And I yes, think this is, right. you know, it'd be nice if Congress would go back and repeal a bunch of these things. But if not, at least they shouldn't be given license to do whatever they want, springboarding off something that wasn't in the original, really in the original law. So I think this is very healthy. And of course, it's fascinating to see progressives attacking this judge because she's young. Right. <laughs> yes. And she like was appointed by Donald right. Trump. So she must I think have, it's also worth- uh, You know, she uh, had to be, a, uh, she, she might have been appointed by him, but she had to be confirmed by the legislature since she's a federal right. judge. She had the Congress had to pass on her. Right. So and I know. think she was she was recommended by Leonard Leo and I think others who knew about her work. Um, I also think it's interesting to compare her to new uh, newly confirmed Justice Jackson uh, as far as her judicial philosophy mm -hmm. and uh, and what Jackson Jackson's views and rulings have been about instead. Keep this woman in mind for future openings. Yes. Uh, and, you know, it, it is. It's kind of a civics lesson. Um, I find it alarming that millions of Americans don't really any longer have any clear idea of who makes laws. It's all very fuzzy. I mean, yeah. the, the claim is made when was being made when you were on airplanes and so forth. Federal law requires the mask. Well, actually, it was a, it was a regulatory uh, injunction yes. um, taken pursuant to a law, but the law itself didn't actually authorize it, as this judge has pointed out. And so many Americans just shrug their shoulders and say, well, it was good for you. So it doesn't matter whether the word sanitize, what it means. It doesn't matter what the words of law mean, because if something's good for us, the government should do it. And well, that attitude that. Is, is, so, is so contra-legal, it's worrisome. It is, but I think part of it is that it is a, conf it is a confusion. And it, does make, it doesn't make any sense. And who am I to challenge it? I'm not an authority. Right. I'm not a legal right. expert. I'm not a biologist, <laughs> as one person said. Yeah, that's what Judge uh, Jackson said, didn't she? My goodness. Well, actually, I've, as I said before, that was a little encouraging to me because it implied that there was some fixity of empirical knowledge yeah, that it, it might actually that, have. It implied that a biologist might have something to say on this subject yeah, and not, and not right. just a, a psychologist or a sociologist. Yeah, that's right. So... Uh, you were coming in for a landing soon here, but I, I couldn't miss the chance to pick you guys' brains once again about our favorite topic, which is uh, uh, Elon Musk versus Twitter. Uh, what's the latest state of play? And uh, it looks like Twitter's resisting his bid to buy the company. What's he after and what's going to happen? What do you think, Bill? Well, you know, these poison pills are something that's out there now. Uh, shareholders can sue and say that the the board of directors is not looking out for the shareholders interests or they can there's various other kinds of shareholder revolts he can still he can still try and go around it i don't we don't really know you know we don't totally know what he's up to and we don't the New York Times ran a fascinating article. There have been several articles along the same lines, but they ran one of the most detailed ones about, well, what does the guy really believe? You know, and they, they would say things like, well, he says he's for the First Amendment and he's for freedom of speech. But one time he was he said he was defamed and he tried to get a journalist to testify. Uh, that must mean he's against 
you know, giving journalists godlike powers and therefore how can he be for the First Amendment? I mean, they really don't understand either the First Amendment or defamation law, which I happen to think is fraught with peril anyway. But the point is, he has a completely consistent position on this. So he has a lot of fascinating, I mean, he was very antagonistic to the lockdowns, very, and including not only mm -hmm. just his personal reaction, but his company tried to rebel against Oh, right. Mm -hmm. yes. And uh, he's very skeptical about a lot of immigration restrictions. He's against federal subsidies. Now, he himself has taken advantage of various tax I and other so, initiatives, yeah. but you know, yep. that's the lay of the land. It's not, it's not unusual for, uh, uh, let's say, your Coke Industries, and you can get a tax exemption for doing X. Mm -hmm. Okay, they're probably going to do it. They're not necessarily saying that they want that tax examination exemption to be there, but... You know, what are they supposed to do? It's something that helps make their company well, yes, profit. Donald Trump said that a number of times. Hey, I didn't pay many taxes, but I was just using the legal deductions. Well, he might have gone a little far on some of the things like <laughs> Maybe uh, so. some of the things like when he wanted to put up a casino parking lot in New Jersey and he ousted the couple from there. But anyway, there is so, so but a person close to, to Musk said that he believes that in a functioning democracy, anyone has a right to say stupid things if they, if mm -hmm. they want, and if he or she mm -hmm. wants to. Yes, please. And he also said that he doesn't think that the government should be imposing its will on the people. And he mm -hmm. says if it does, in the few times that it does, it should try to maximize happiness. So this is kind of a Benth Jeremy Bentham type, greatest good for the greatest number. It's fraught with peril, but it's, you know, there are worse, <laughs> there are worse positions. And he also he claims that he think he says he thinks that the Biden administration is controlled by labor unions by the union. So he has a lot of good instincts. I'm not saying he's a political philosopher. I'm just saying he's a right. businessman who has faced a lot of bad treatment from the government as he's tried to grow his business. Well, well also um, in response to. Uh, Musk, it's it's it it's been a shakeup for a lot of people. You know, he's been a hero of the right. of the uh, Greens, right? Uh, and here he's a guy who is against um, uh, a lot of the green measures uh, against fossil fuels. Yes, he said that. Um, he said we should increase production. Right, and so uh, Robert Reich, the former Labor Secretary. Uh, did a uh, uh, an article attacking him, um, and he actually and this is according to Reich. He says Musk has long advocated a libertarian vision of an uncontrolled internet. That's also the dream of every dictator, strongman, and demagogue. What? <laughs> I thought it was the opposite. Tell that it is the opposite. Tell and, that to Chairman Xi, right? This is, right? <laughs> this is Putin. but this reflects the dilemma of progressives that they think they're for liberating people when they're the first in line to control them. Um, but you know, Musk, I think, has a number of options. He, he's he has talked about his Plan B. Uh, some believe it is one in which he's putting together others to uh, buy stakes in Twitter. Uh, Twitter's been. Uh, going down in his stock value, right. um, 
he uh, Musk has also uncovered a bunch of other things that are questionable about how Twitter is operated, mm. including the behavior of the board, some of the people on the board who have never tweeted at all, and so on, and also some of the people on the board who have close uh, positions with with uh, powerful entities that benefit from Twitter's censoring of others. I have and to so say I that Jack, Jack Dorsey, the previous head of said the board is acting pretty foolish about this. That's right. Bit. And because I think Dorsey realizes that Trump, that sorry, that Musk is onto something. Yeah. And so, uh, so Musk has become a hero to, uh, it's almost along party lines now. Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, Trump is a maverick. Sorry, um, sorry Musk. And Musk. <laughs> Musk is they're both mavericks, but we're talking about Musk. Yeah. Musk is a maverick. Um, and uh, I think it is true that he will take subsidies and tax breaks when he can get them. But he also is a, he's an entrepreneur. And uh, I do think that he genuinely does realize and support the idea of a free expression. Uh, Bill, I don't I don't believe that he is against libel and slander laws. Right. Uh, right. Which, but But I do think that in the common law tradition, they can be very uh, well def defended. And um, I don't know exactly his, where he draws the line, but I do think that um, he's made an offer to the board, uh, which is a valuation far above the, the uh, market price. And the fact they've rebelled and reacted the way they have means that there are other things at play other than a company maximizing profits. Yeah. I like the fact that Elon Musk represents a non-governmental solution to the abuse of non-governmental power by a huge entity like Twitter. I think Elon Musk's solution to the Twitter problem is a little more attractive than Josh Hawley's. I, yes, I agree. agree. I agree. I completely. I think we all agree on, with that, Graham. But I still am also uh, in favor of eliminating Section Two Thirty, which is I think. And I am. And measure. I am not. I. Yeah, you two disagree I, on that. I, I know. Right. I, and I, I, I think that it shouldn't disagree. apply to any. Any media, I think it's uh, it's uh, it's a limited liability that is on a, on a inappropriate. But also, I think the uh, the contracts that Twitter has with different government entities uh, casts a right. dark shadow it on does. their incentives. Yeah, it also so compromises. Not, their... This is not simply a free market right. um, entity which is responding to, to customer um pressures it is an entity which is tied into the, to deep state interests right and i think part of what musk has recently been pointing out is the board in part reflects that yeah fascinating observation so bill um you were making me laugh a little bit earlier uh, about the police officer who blasted the disney yeah. songs you want to regale our audience with that well yes and one of our uh research associates at the Independent Institute, uh, Jonathan Hofer, has actually written about this in a different city. Uh, but in Santa Ana, in Orange County, where I am right now, uh, the police, when they go out on patrols, uh, they, they, people videotape them because sometimes police do things that are not good for the citizens and violate their rights. But... The police know that you can't put on an online platform a copywritten tune and that Walt Disney Corporation has banks of lawyers who do nothing but, uh, you know, make sure that Disney tunes are not put on 
YouTube or something like that, unless it's authorized. So the police, when they're out on patrol, broadcast Disney, Disney tunes <laughs> from their Some police. their loudspeakers. The police do. They not not every police. Just no. These ones. are this is in Santa Ana. And they were, I know, they, but it's not every. No, no, I know, they, I, I know. Well, it, it, it yeah. was in Beverly Hills in, in, in another case. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. it's several police units in California, and uh, they do it because that way the people can't videotape them doing something and put it on YouTube or some other platform. Mm -hmm. And they made the mistake of doing this in the neighborhood of a city council member in Santa and he said. Yeah. What? So it was also late at night, too, right? So what are you yeah. doing? Mm -hmm. And the policemen admitted what they were doing. And yeah. so now they're in tr real trouble for doing this, as so they should the be. So they're playing the Disney songs to run interference on for themselves. Yeah, songs. exactly. Right. It's kind of, so it's kind these, of funny. Yeah. So these legal firms and legal people have these bots that uh, track through YouTube videos and look for copyright infringements right. and Jonathan correctly shows that this is because of the the legal conf, uh, confusion over this matter it needs to be straightened out because yeah. it is a big threat so another referred so another yeah. really funny horrifying thing was that there was this principal in New York City and he was a high school principal and he was cheating it was seeing to it that the scores for his students at his school were way inflated through a multitude of different means. So he went through the procedures and the procedures said he should be fired. So what did the administration do? They gave him a $1.8 million a year job doing nothing. In order to prevent what? I don't know, in order to prevent a lawsuit, in order to not lawsuit, have other principals unhappy that, that yeah. somebody was held to account. Right. Uh, protecting and, their own. I don't really know exactly. They didn't right. really so, tell so us, get a, but they're doing a, it. He has an office, he'll get a pension, and so on. Yikes. Yeah. Wow, I guess it's, uh, if you can get it, I guess it's good. Yeah. <laughs> we need a few watchdogs, a few people watching out what's happening uh, at various levels of government. We have referred to some of our own studies over the course of this conversation, including an education policy and privacy issues and foreign affairs, among others. I would encourage our friends uh, who may be joining us today to dig in deeper. You can find uh, all sorts of resources on these and uh, other issues of the like on our website, independent.org. Uh, where you'll find also our latest books and our journal, The Independent Review, uh, just as a plug for our own journal, which I don't seem to have a copy in my hand, but uh, our latest issue of The Independent Review features a cover story on the 1619 Project and uh, gives you a very detailed, uh, specific breakdown of where that project went wrong. We invite you to look at The Independent Review and at a number of things on our website, independent.org. And I thank both Bill and David for the way you've helped contribute to that website, among other things. So, Bill, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for all doing this together, all of us. All your great work. And thank you, David. Thank you, Graham. Thank you, Bill. And we look forward to seeing all of our friends again in a couple of weeks on Independent Outlook. Take care, everybody. <laughs>